<laughs> I, I cannot believe we made it. I, I <laughs> Every like, we've been hitting refresh on the trouble spots in Sydney <laughs> information. Every, like, I've had worse stress dreams and I've, I actually feel like coming to Brisbane for a show is now number one in my top one of... <laughs> it's, gonna, it's going to replace tsunamis as my chief anxiety dream. <laughs> because it was... The very first Brisbane show was the time that Sydney had high winds and we couldn't land and we had to enter the venue from the actual street and, and you'd all been and waiting And you'd for an just hour. interviewed Hillary Clinton. And it was Federal Budget Week and it was a nightmare. And I was on my way to the Royal Wedding. In London, yeah. yeah. And then last year, the, this very show was right at the point of when the whole nation was going to lock down and we didn't know what to do and we ended up cancelling at last minute. And then we were thinking, right, we're home and hosed and then this week, dip, COVID <laughs> cases. <laughs> My so, worst nightmare actually was that, because we weren't on the same flight and I was on an earlier flight, was that I would make it to Brisbane. This was a live possibility, particularly as I was <laughs> weeping in the taxi on the way trying to fill out the goddamn, was it the border declaration form or was it the border declaration pass? Like there were two of them. It was a very, it looked like a plot to me and you had to photograph your driver's licence. I'm just like, oh, I just can't do it. And I'm getting off the plane thinking, have I done any interviews this week that would have pissed off Anastasia Palaszczuk? <laughs> <laughs> Taken anyway. out by drone strike. We are here in Brisbane. Always happy, always a happy occasion for me with the hometown crowd, all, all my hometown favourites. Scott the Maths Guy's here. Scott the Maths Guy, all right. Tim, who came to Paul McCartney with me, is here. Lucky dog. Mum's here. Mum! <laughs> And sales Penny. soon Penny. to be releasing her <laughs> spin-off series. Penny, my sister-in-law. Leanne, my old music teacher, who's probably got a lot to answer for in your... Oh, Leanne yeah. could tell some tales. <laughs> um, we always pair with a charity, as you know, uh, for shows, and a, a percentage of proceeds from the show go to a charity. And uh, tonight, it's, a, it's the Smith, Smith family, and the program's called Smarts. And it's sort of similar, actually, to one that we backed in WA called Shooting stars which use netball to get indigenous girls to stay at school for longer this one um, kids who uh, come from disadvantaged backgrounds often don't do any have any access to cultural or sporting activities and so this program uses the arts to help kids become more engaged with schools and so with school and so that's what we're backing um, awesome program and sorry that you had to wait a year and a couple of months for that <laughs> uh, particular donation because they were our charity from last year and it's also while we're talking about the Smith family it's also the Smith family's win to repeal at the moment. So if you've got any um, spare coins sitting around at home, um, feel free to, to um, share them. It's so nice to be in a room with a crowd and a live audience. It feels sort of wrong, but so right. <laughs> I went, actually, I went to see something last week. I went to see Come From Away, which I oh. think's already been on in Brisbane. Right, yeah. yeah. I saw a poster for it. Yeah, yeah it was great. Do you, so you've not seen it. Right? I've not seen it because it's been in Sydney before and I didn't see it then and I've not yet seen it this time around either. So I'm, you know, I'm a blank slate. So it's a show about, uh, it's on in Sydney now. It's about... It's a really unique idea for a show, actually. It's about a town in Canada that post 9-11, after the 9-11 terrorist attacks happened, there were planes in the air at the time and they had to be diverted to places where they thought they could land safely. Is that and... what this is about? I've never yeah. known what this thing's about and I'm, I've been a bit embarrassed to ask because I've passed the 
window of opportunity where I could understandably <laughs> be ignorant about it. And now everyone knows, but I'm like, mm. Yeah. Thank you. And so they were sent to this town called Gannon in Canada. Um, and so they had like 7,000 people from all around the world descended on this town that has like a one, you know, strip sort of runway. And the town people all had to like really dig deep and sort of figure out what are we going to do with all of these people. And so that's what the musical's about. What a great concept for a musical. Yeah, it's amazing. And it just, it also puts you back in that mindset. I think we forget now because it was 20 years ago how... Um, in that immediate aftermath of 9-11, it was just so unsettling because everyone felt like, well, when's the next terror attack going to happen and what's going to happen next? And I was living in the US just after that. And so there were things in it that reminded me a lot of being there. Like there was this, there's a character in the musical who's an Egyptian man who everyone immediately starts treating with suspicion just because he's Egyptian. Um, and it reminded me one time of I was in the airport in Washington flying to London. I got chatting to the guy in the queue and they, the security people used to walk along the queue before you even checked in. And he was flying on an Iranian passport and he said to me, uh, you know, watch this. And sure enough, it was literally, he just got hauled over the coals. Well, I was completely, you know, sort of waved through. Jeremy and I went travelling to the US not long after, um, probably maybe a year after 9-11, and we were booked on... We only had single, like, one-way flights because we were going dunk, 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 and we were going to see Jeremy's sister in Costa Rica. But because we had only one-way flights and only carry-on, we, oh, like, yeah. I had this... I noticed that my boarding passes had this symbol, like, four S's on them. And when I was being... When I was essentially getting to third base with um, a lady from p the pat-down area... <laughs> like, I seriously, every time we checked in... Oh, we'd go to the um, security gates and Jeremy would go straight through and there'd be like this shuffling and then calling for a lady to come and seriously feel me up quite intimately. Every single time I'm like, what's going on? And eventually one of the friendlier ones said, well, you've got this thing on your, you know, you've been identified for some reason as <laughs> So it was just like a lot of you know, air, aircraft people saw my underwear. That, Good times. That year. It was amazing. It was, uh, it was, it was a great trip. Yeah. <clears throat> um, I have not seen you, but I've been dying to ask you about something I'm going to see tomorrow, which is In the Heights. <gasps> yeah, okay. So it's, it's opened here, I take it, right? Like the movie In the Heights. This is Lin-Manuel Miranda's first... Was it the first musical? I think it was. Um... And it's years and years old, but of course it's been sort of dusted off and made into this like, really slick, amazing movie. And I've got to say, I saw it with two children and in a kind of slightly tired, jaded frame of mind, and it just completely, completely perked me up. It's just... So it's set in um, Washington Heights, which is basically, I think, the hood where... LMM grew up and it's basically you know the life of this street and the characters in it and um, the main character is this um, guy called Usnavi um, and when his father arrived in America as an immigrant he saw an incredibly impressive US naval ship with US Navy written on the side so he called his son Usnavi and, um, <laughs> and um, He's, like, the principal character is in love with this girl. And so it's basically this sort of boy meets girl, massive dance-off with just incredible songs. And 
I, I literally laughed and cried and danced in my seat. Yeah, about mm. three people have said to me, oh, it's just so feel good and, you know, it's just great escapism. It's incredibly full of energy and colour and if it's a cold day, I would absolutely recommend just going and sitting in front of it with a giant... Darling, it's never popcorn. a cold day up here. No. <laughs> I know, right? So my friend Beck, um, who's in the audience tonight, hello, Beck, um, said, uh, God, it bring a jumper, it's freezing here in Brisbane. <laughs> Got off the plane and went, you people, for real, it's like 19 <laughs> degrees. <laughs> Actually, I noticed I caught up with some uni friends this afternoon. My friend Emma, who was there. Oh, there oh, they are. Like troublemakers. <laughs> they are. My friend Emma. the music teacher. They'll be hell to pay. My friend Emma has come down from North Queensland. She was pretty rugged up. All she was missing was a beanie and a scarf, oh, really. It's, <laughs> it's, it's shocking. It's Arctic. It really is. It's amazing. Hey, speaking of... Um, people that um, are, I believe here tonight. Is it true that Jackie Ann's here? Yeah, all right. Um, oh, yeah. Are, you, are you kitted out, Jackie Ann? Oh, great, all right. Can we bring the house lights up? Just because Jackie Ann, you remember Jackie Ann from the cabbage? Oh, I see what Can you've done more? there, Jackie Ann. Okay, so Jackie Ann is the lady who had a cabbage um, delivered to her in under 20 minutes in Maruya when she was travelling in Maruya with sore boobs and went to hospital unexpectedly and um, just said randomly on the Facebook group, hey, I need a cabbage, and bang. Um, and she has made a lovely outfit. Oh, it's got pockets as well. Look at that. This is out of the uh, crazy Chat 10 Looks 3 fabric that Gwen designed when, I assume drunk, I don't know. I mean, we, we, this started out being a joke, but is now a, a thing. And um, just tell me um, how you came up with this outfit design, Jackie Ann. Um, <laughs> it's just uh, the only thing that fit me. <laughs> All right. It is awesome. Did you sew it yourself? Oh, God. Can I... Did, has anyone else sewn anything or wearing anything made out of Gwen's fabric? All right, we've got one up in there. Up in oh, the, have we? What are you, stand up. What are you wearing? It's not that fabric. <laughs> what, you're wearing a rival which <laughs> podcast fabric? Get out of here, man. Like, you dare come in here dressed like that. Kind of a round of applause for Jackie Ann for just generally being a kind of platinum chatter. Do you know what I'm really um, worried about? So we've got these two shows in Sydney in July, back to back, um, and then the next live shows actually, and the Friday night show is called the one that Sales arranged, and the Saturday night show is called the one that Crab arranged, it's and neither of us knows already. anything about it. My fear is that you are getting somebody to make like lederhosen like those people wear in The Sound of Music out of that fabric. <laughs> She and that you're going to so make me wear it on the for your reals. night. So for reals, when we were talking about the fabric, I think in the Facebook group, um, just sales has actually super firmly and seriously said, seriously, nobody make me anything out of that fabric and send it to me. <laughs> I won't like it. Hey, can I just say thanks to Elizabeth Keogh, wherever you are. Just oh, yeah. Give us a yell. Yay. Oh, yeah, thank you. That was beautiful cake. So she dropped us off some pear, raspberry and ricotta cake out the back. That so was my dinner, very, so thank you very much. Thank you very much. It was delicious. For that. It had the vibe of still being warm. It was very, very good. So because we love we're not, all We're of not you. quite finished talking about oh, that sorry. Sydney show yet. Oh, because, okay. Like, because there is nothing that sales loves more than like a really stupid secret, like <laughs> just... Doing something mean to me or, you know. Oh, come on. It's the just, other way around. It puts a smile on her dial all day long. So <laughs> she keeps texting me weird things like, 
you know, what bra size are you? No, she didn't, she didn't ask that. She didn't ask that. But, you I know, just kind of things that are calculated to make me feel a bit... Wrong-footed. Just wrong-footed. And, like, you know, you'll have to wear this because I've got something else for you to put on and, you know... <laughs> and so I've started, you know, how are you with um, rats? Are you OK with rats? You know, <laughs> just sort of a bit of random stuff. But my, my nightmare, actually, is that... Um, is that we get to the Friday night one is the sales one. Um, and my nightmare is that I will arrange a whole night of things that will horrify her and she will arrange a whole night of things that will delight me and then I'll feel like a jerk <laughs> or the other way around. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that would be pretty, that would be pretty appalling. Um, now, look, do you like the way she just closed me off? It's like the end of the story. It's like 7.30. Okay, that's enough on that segment. I think we'll be moving on now to the interview with the Agriculture Minister. <laughs> Um, because we love all of you Brisbane people, we've been very diligent. And Actually, we have done a shitload of homework. We have. We've tried to consume content relating to Queensland, either by, you know, Queensland authors or... I had a slab of Forex earlier. <laughs> <laughs> and I joined the National Party. <laughs> No, joking, I was already a member of the National Party. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, look, I mean, I say we did homework, but I had actually already pre-read some <laughs> Queensland authors. What, like, I would, what is it that makes the Queensland literary scene so good? Now, I mean, it is actually a really significant chunk of the nation's great writers that come from Queensland. Why is that? What's going on? Not that I'm... Is that a weird, like, weirdly insulting question? Because I'm like... So I'm from Adelaide, right? Like, I'm from, I'm, from, I'm from a rural pocket in South Australia. And here again, I'm treading cautiously. But Do I go reckon, on, Annabelle. <laughs> but I would say I could name ten great writers that are from Brisbane or, sorry, anywhere in Queensland. Um, and I probably couldn't as readily rattle off a comparable list of South Australian writers, even though we had Don Dunstan and, you know, we yeah, funny, kind of, it? you know, invented... It's funny, isn't it, how certain fabulous. places throw up certain, you know, people that have expertise at certain things. I don't know why that is. But we honest. had... I mean, we didn't have a police state in, um, in Australia, and I'm thinking <laughs> that maybe... Maybe the arts flourishes because of the... you maybe. get a bit more of a rebellious undertow with a police state. But we had Don Dunstan, who was like, well, let's wear pink shorts and be nice to each other and be interested in Asian cuisine a bit earlier than everybody else. <laughs> I like, know. I mean, that's what we did. <laughs> and we're all just sort of, you know... Yeah, I'd, I don't know. I don't know either. So, right. um, okay, so what have, what have you been reading? Well, um, where shall I start? Well, I've been, I'm, I've been reading Bree Lee's um, latest book, How to Be Smart, Who Gets to Be Smart, sorry. And, geez, she's a valuable writer, that person. She's so good. And I'm just... I haven't finished it yet. I'm kind of um, just learning stuff. She's very well read and she has this just a fire of curiosity about her, where she doesn't accept things that she sees. She always just goes and has a little dig. Anyway, the, the book starts with um, her visit to Oxford, because a friend of her is study, hers is studying there on a Rhodes Scholarship. And she is 
perfectly appropriately, um, reading Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own as she strolls around, you know, uh, the quadrangles and so on. And it sort of starts her thinking about the um, kind of Rhodes Scholarship tradition and then, like, how do you get to be at Oxford and who expects to go to Oxford and who finds it overwhelming. And then it kind of becomes this investigation of how education works, you know, in Australia and internationally. And she goes sort of does little byways past the history of Cecil Rhodes, for instance, and all the debates about, you know, whether they should knock over his statue and who's for it and who's against it and so on. Um, but it's just like, it's, it's, a, it's a nourishing book because it makes you think about your presumptions about education and how it should work and how it does work. Um, so who, who does get to be smart? Like, does she answer that question? Or? Well, essentially, she identifies, you know, she says that there's kind of a, um, an echelon in society that expects its children to receive a certain level of education. If you're sort of born outside that, then you are an aspirational person. And I must say, kind of like as a, I mean, I won a scholarship to a private school when I was, you know, 12 or something and went off to boarding school, which was quite a bizarre thing to do. But I kind of identify with her question here because I feel like, you know, probably that event in my life changed my educational kind of trajectory, I think, right. um, and maybe it makes me m more kind of open to her line of inquiry, but it sort of reminded me a little bit of the podcast series that Malcolm Gladwell did, um, I don't know, one or two po podcast series back of revision revisionist history, sorry, it's the forex, um, <laughs> and um, where he did this sort of, um, you know, investigation of the US education system and, you know, who essentially gets permission to be smart yeah. I don't even reckon I heard of, say, the Rhodes Scholarship till I would have been about 27 or 28. Right, which is too late because you're too old for it by that stage. Well, it's a shame because, I mean, yeah. I, I ticked yeah. all of those boxes. We had a wonderful rowing program yeah. at Astley High School. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing too. Like with the Rhodes Scholarship, you have to be super good at a sport. And yeah. But there's this terrible, like just a shocking and memorable juncture of the book that comes, Bree's book that comes quite early on, where she's talking to her friend and who suddenly, who just drops, you know, the fact that you have to be under, I think, 26 or something, and she is too old to apply for one, and, and she has this feeling of just this wrenching, oh, so... I will never, ever get a Rhodes Scholarship. Not that she was sort of thinking that she probably would, but just the confirmation of the exclusion from this program. And I, I, it was a quite an emotional moment, actually. Um, it's yeah. one of the, um, I reckon, a bad feeling in life, that feeling of when you see something or you learn something and you go, wow, I will never... Like, that I will never happen to me. Like, oh, you'll never read anything by Charles Dickens. Yeah. <laughs> I went to the Sydney Symphony last night. They had a really wonderful cellist playing called Umberto Clerici, and I yet again had that moment of thinking, wow, I will never be a good cellist or probably even play the cello. I've left it too late and... Yes, yeah, you will it's... never be a success. <laughs> <laughs> I will never grow the biggest zucchini in the world. I accept <laughs> that now. <laughs> Do you know one of the things I reckon is unfortunate with the nature of our show? I, I'm getting the vibe this is like a chatty audience and that people have things that they'd like to say. Yeah. See? See ya. And it's such a shame that there's not, like, some sort of way that everyone can be mic'd, although that obviously wouldn't be workable, but it just feels like... Do you know what? But it feels like it would be a really good conversation. This has got the vibe of one of your dafter ideas so far. <laughs> <laughs> 
It actually is actually the feeling. It, I, I know what you mean. And um, can we have the house lights up a little bit? I'd love to see people a little bit more. Is that, is that weird? Is that going to bug anybody? Oh, yeah, that's nice. I can see you all now. Thank you. Very much. It's also given us a little disco vibe that I'm very happy with. Okay. Um, it's like that feeling just before um, that the Facebook group got set up for Chat Ten Looks Three, and you know, I mean, I'm not a big Facebook user. That's the only bit of Facebook that I look at. But um, it did feel like that—that that there was like all these people busting to just get in touch with each other, and then when it got set up, they're like, "Oh, thank God for that!" I, yeah. I feel tempted to say. Is there anyone busting to say something and say it? But then I just think, no, I'm too scared to let that too. <laughs> just in case someone. I'll wants remind to do you it that yet. your mother is in the room. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah. um, look, the other one that I'm I've read so many uh, Brisbane books, um, Queenslandy books. I, because it's a little bit also about this feeling of being an, an outsider, um, I will mention Rick Morton's new book, um, My Year of Living Vulnerably, which um, I get a similar sort of vibe from, like this um, person, and you know from Rick's first book, right, that um, 100 Years of Dirt, that, you know, he had a lot of just unthinkable trauma in his early life and um, has spent a good deal of his adulthood kind of dealing with that. And I... I particularly in his first book um, remember the discussion that he had about the experience of trying to become a journalist when he was so poor that he couldn't, you know, go and do a traineeship for free at some newspaper because he needed to be working full-time in order to keep himself um, afloat. And his observation about the sort of people that now can find work as journalists if it requires doing, you know, a free kind of traineeship or internship is basically it's open to the sort of people whose parents can support them while they work for free at a newspaper. So, I mean, I think that was a really great point that he made in that book. But this one is more, um, this book is about dealing with trauma, actually, and becoming vulnerable after spending such a long time kind of locked down um, in a state of sort of fear, I suppose. So, again, like, it's such a... It's it's a really well-informed book. It kind of, like, ranges through all of these issues, like loneliness, like fear, like um, masculinity and affection. He talks about his campaign to start hugging people again because he didn't hug anyone for such a long time that he decided to just start madly hugging everybody. And that included drunkenly hugging the editor of The Australian <laughs> after a budget dinner. He doesn't actually <laughs> mention which editor of The Australian is, but I got a pretty good idea and that guy would be funny to hug, um, I think. <laughs> yeah. The, um, I, it's sort of, I think you could describe it as being a book about trying to move from being in a defensive crouch to being more just open to, you know, all of the full experience of being a human, including being potentially hurt and, and that kind of thing. Yeah, and he ma manages all these, like, fantastic diversions and digressions. Like, I've just, like, read... Uh, reread a passage that's about the blanket octopus and I just frankly I salute anyone who can get a blanket octopus into a book about you know being vulnerable I think you know <laughs> I think that is a hell of a way to get to the word limit and I love it uh, so we 
We record our podcast at the offices of the Batuta Advocate. Which, we do. Yeah. How funny is that, right? And so we've become friendly with uh, the guys who do that, and they are very funny. If you do, if you don't look at their website or follow them on social media, I recommend it because they are really hilarious, and I think they're genuine, independent thinkers, which I really like. Yeah. Um, anyway, they sometimes when we arrive to do our pod or at the end of it, we often get chatting um, with them, and they sometimes give us book recommendations. And in fact, do you know why they give us book rec? I mean, I mean, because that address sometimes appears. Um, associated with the podcast, people send books to that address. Yeah. So we often turn up and they're like, hi, yeah, there's, these are here for you. Like <laughs> Have you giant, noticed that yeah. growing pile? Yeah, that no, that's our fault. Yeah. That's our fault. But yeah. they do sometimes, you know, they will have read some of them or whatever True. and then yeah. they will flick us some stuff. And so there's two that we recently got flicked and we've each read one. And so I brought mine, which I really loved, which is by a Brisbane uh, woman called Becky Lucas, who's a comedian. Um, it's called Acknowledgements, a memoir so far. It's... Um, How old I've, is this woman? She's got to be, what, 25? About 30, early 30s, I think, 31, it's bold. 32. It's a bold memoir that you, like, <laughs> I said dash off before your 30th. It's called A Memoir So Far. Um, so it's pretty much, I think, at heart... Um, a decent person um, with, with a good heart just sharing their observations of life and about, you know, things that have happened to them so far in that kind of, I guess, you know, fitting a little bit with what you're saying about Brie Lee and, um, and Rick Morton, you know how comedians have that sometimes slightly outsidery perspective because they're often yeah. very um, much Nuts. observers. Oh, sorry, observers. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I found this. Um, I was just going to read you a bit because I feel like it gives a, f a bit of a good flavour about um, uh, just the tone of the book. So if you like this, you'll probably like, like the book. Um, it's about when somebody really famous writes a song about you or... That's happened a lot to me. You'll have to narrow, narrow it down. <laughs> Or they write a song and she's talking about, um, she finds out that the song The Special Two by Missy Higgins, you know, very famous song, yeah. um, was inspired by a situation with Missy Higgins' sister where they both were um, keen on the same bloke and uh, Missy Higgins ended up having a relationship with him and her sister was very heartbroken. And she says, I, I was stunned. I'd been a huge fan of the song when I was younger and I had been so sure it was a regular love song. And then I thought of her sister and what must have been running through her mind the first time she heard it. The special two in the song is not Missy and her lover, as I had always assumed, but Missy and her sister. The song is essentially an apology and a promise of sorts that she's determined to mend the relationship and be close to her sister once again. This, to me, is an example of a great song made even better by its intense backstory. But I admit, now that I know this, I'm pretty interested in the sister's version of events. <laughs> because I bet that no matter how incredible that song was and how genuine she thought the sentiment, she probably would have preferred it if there was no need for a song in the first place. <laughs> My heart really does go out to all the people who've been fucked over by an artist. Not only have they had to go through that trial, but then they have to watch as the person who fucks them over goes on to write a number one hit about it. It feels like the bad behaviour gets excused just because the artist has processed their feelings in a way the public can enjoy. <laughs> Meanwhile, the other person has to sit by, quietly eating their tuna salad, as they listen to their office co-workers humming along to the lyrics that depict, <laughs> that depict in detail one of the worst moments of their lives. 
In the case of Missy's sister, I assume that finding this out about her, Missy and her, her uh, lover was enough of a blow. But no, that wasn't the end of it. Then she had to endure Missy sitting her down in the lounge room and presenting her with a song. She not only had to deal with the gut-wrenching agony of such a terrible portrayal, but she was also forced to compliment what is undeniably a very good song and watch on as the person who had hurt her used that song to advance her career. The special two went on to win all the big awards in Australia, and rightly so, but imagine the pressure of having to forgive someone when they're, they're sorry, imagine the pressure of having to forgive someone when their apology to you wins an actual award. <laughs> So it's very much like that, so which I thought was great. Oh, my God. I, I, yeah. It'd be like sort of asking Jolene how she feels. Right? Well, I once watched a... I can't remember if it was a podcast, but it was about the song My Sharona. And Sharona was actually, I think if I'm remembering right, she was the girlfriend... She wasn't the girlfriend of the guy who wrote My Sharona. Oh, She was like... Awkward. One of his friend's girlfriends or something, but he was really keen on her. And then he wrote My Sharona. Just think, imagine like pushing your trolley around and in the coals and my Sharona comes on and you know that's me, I'm not Sharona. Yeah, or you're like, hi, I'm Jessie's girl actually. I'm just like, <laughs> yeah. I married somebody else but wow, I <laughs> that was an awkward period. I won't bore you because I know I've told this story in the podcast before but I have met the Helen who's happy birthday Helen. Do you know what? As soon as you started reading that, you I knew thought I was she's going to mention that, that the Helen thing. Yeah. Did I tell it's you like, I saw Paul McCartney once as well? Did you? <laughs> Is there anyone here who attended that event and can confirm that she did see Oh, my God, yeah. Anyway, so you oh, read the other funny. book. You read the I, other book. I did read the other book, which is less hilarious, I've got to say. I read Car Crash by Lech Blaine, um, which is just an unbelievably compelling and great book. So Lech Blaine is a sort of an essayist and journalist and... Um, the other thing that is interesting about him was that he was involved in just a hideous car accident where, I mean, people here will remember it, right? A bunch of schoolboys driving from Toowoomba um, uh, went off the road, rolled, and a number of them were killed. And he was in the passenger seat, front seat, and survived. So the book is about... It's kind of like this sort of compacted memoir, I suppose, about what it is like to survive something like that as a, you know, an unformed person, you know, like he was a 16-year-old schoolboy. And the amazing thing about it is that he is capable of um, summoning, almost in slow motion, his emotional reaction um, to the event, even from the actual event itself, and then what happened afterwards, and getting to the hospital, and not realising that his friends had been killed. And he also was a sort of public school boy, was in a car with a bunch of private school boys. So there's also a layer of this sort of feeling um, a bit off kilter socially with the group that he was sort of with. Um, and his very best friend was um, very badly injured um, and was in hospital for a very long time. So there was changes to that relationship as well. Anyway, it's, it's such a thoughtfully intense book and it's kind of obviously about this key event but it is also about this sort of enforced obligation for this child essentially to cope with these extraordinary feelings of guilt and um, 
and remorse. Um, does he go and talk? Like, is it a work of journalism? Like, does he go and talk to other people that were involved? Or is it straight no, sort of... No, it's straight memoir, really, right. yeah. And um, anyway, I have an enormous amount of respect for people who can excavate their own kind of emotional profile in that way. Um, anyway, it's it's a really... I mean, it's a tough read, obviously, because it concerns some really hard things, but it's um, also just a terrific book, I thought. Mm. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm curious Less funny either. than yours, yes. But, like, <laughs> <laughs> shuffling on. Um, the other... <laughs> the other um, oh, I'm, I just picked this up the other day because um, I did ask in the group whether anyone could, you know, recommend any Brisbane-y, Queensland-y sort of books. And Cathy Beale, librarian to the stars and uh, otherwise known as Brenda uh, One version one, um, drop this at my door. It's by Tracy Thorne, who used to be um, the front woman of anything but the girl, everything but the girl, right? And it's the weirdest sort of memoir because it's a memoir of her friendship with Lindy Morrison of the Go-Betweens, right? So Tracy Thorne is British and she's, she's written some other stuff, you know, like she's a prolific writer but she's written this book about her friendship with Lindy Morrison, who she met kind of in the 80s when the go-betweens moved to uh, London and Lindy Morrison was at that stage sharing a house with Robert Forster and Nick Cave, who was extremely interested in heroin at the time and was doing not much else. Um, and what it actually becomes um, is this quite, apart from... A, an account of quite an extraordinary woman in Lindy Morrison, um, who of course was this sort of like punk girl drummer who then joined the go-betweens, who were these sort of, you know, highly intellectual sort of very sort of straight guys singing beautiful songs. Um, so she was like this sort of complete odd person out. Um, and um, this book becomes almost like a portrait of what it was like to be a female musician in that era, which is actually, I'm finding it sort of tragic, very fascinating, but also just, um, I'll read you a tiny bit just because, just to give you a sense of it. And I'm, I'm, I haven't finished it yet, so I, I haven't quite got a sense of, I mean, did Lindy Morrison approve this book? I, I guess she probably did. There's lots of letters and is so she, on. Is she dead now? No, no. Oh, okay. No, I mean... Unless Lindsay, are you here? <laughs> no, not dead. So, does it read like a book that she would have given permission to be written? Or look, I'm sure. Look, it it it's it's certainly an incredibly affectionate, almost sort of. It's it's almost sort of it's like an Archibald portrait or something. It's like a it's an homage to this woman because she was such an extraordinary figure in the music world, Lindy Morrison, because women weren't drummers, women were barely, you know, rock musicians. She just was a person who was actually sort of radicalised by the old police state, went on to become Morrison. Yeah, see? I, I think it's a feeding into my theory because <laughs> she was in a punk band and then she got um, involved in um, Aboriginal legal, legal Aid and was kind of like a bit of a campaigner and uh, activist and then, you know, became a full-time musician. Anyway, I'm going to read you this little bit. Um, it's written in a kind of interesting way. It's like a third person, like it's 
she talks about Lindy does this and Lindy does that and then I meet you sort of thing. So it's kind of, it's an interesting structure. Anyway, the go-betweens are one of those bands. Can I just say, can I reveal what happened backstage? When why, don't, I was, why don't you read okay, and then we'll right, do yeah. that. The go-betweens are one of those bands who are reviewed largely on the strength of their lyrics as though they've published a volume of poetry rather than made an album. The music is mentioned less often than the words and the drumming least of all. If writers struggle to write about music, then drumming leaves them stumped. Sometimes the only mention is of what she looks like playing the drums. And here she quotes from a few articles. Lindy hovering behind the drums like a ghost of some description. It pays to be pretty, but tonight it's left to Lindy to bear the burden of go-between's visuals. What? Who writes like that? I bet the person who wrote that's here, right, sorry. <laughs> Lindy Morrison's fringe sweeps across her eyes as she lashes out a rhythm. We could watch drummer Lindy Morrison's blonde hair lifting in the random breeze blowing on stage. I don't have to tell you that those reviews are all written by men. When you read what another woman has to say about her, the difference is startling. This, for instance, is from an interview with musician Tracy Ellis. Seeing Lindy take her handbag on stage and put it down next to her drum kit was a revelation. It's hard to imagine how much of a rebellious act that was. This was at the height of pub rock, which, while fabulous in many ways, was also absolutely soaked to the gills in testosterone and alcohol and petrol fumes. When she sat in a vintage frock behind a drum kit and played in her own style, you could feel the winds of change blasting from the stage. For me and other women watching her behind the drums on stage, Lindy's presence was a revelation. We knew what we were seeing when we looked at her. We knew what it meant. That's great. It is. Um, quickly, just because the word wind of change came up there. Um, you know that podcast you told me to listen to called oh, Wind no. of Change? Oh, yeah. I can vaguely remember We'll it. come back to the go-betweens in a yeah. sec. So you and a heap of people said to me, you really should listen to that. It's going to be so far up your alley. It's about was the CIA using music as an undercover tool. Da, da, da. I listened to a couple of episodes. It didn't really hook me. Wow. So you've stopped on my story to tell me that like, <laughs> you thought my podcast <laughs> recommendation was crap. <laughs> It was, it was okay, but it just didn't, it didn't really hook me. But do you know the fact that stuck with me out of it? Was, well, firstly, I did recognise the song when... Because you know how you yes. said you'll know it when you see it. Um, but when, when the Navy SEALs got Osama bin Laden, one yes. of the first people in the world to tweet about it before the White House released the information was The Rock. The what? Rock tweeted... <laughs> Preemptively to say, um, wow, some big news about to hit out of Afghanistan, you know, USA, what, what, what? The Rock put that tweet what? out. Really? And the White House saw it and they're like, the only people that know are the people in the Situation Room. The Rock has just tweeted, alluding clearly to the raid on, sorry, it was in Pakistan, to, to the raid on um, bin Laden's compound. And the only explanation they've ever been able to come up with um, is that they think that. The, the Rock, Rock must have had some Navy made with the Navy SEAL, yeah, who was in the thing, and they've, they've obviously... Okay, so now this is your cue to make an 18-part <laughs> podcast examining, like... Because that, that is the new podcast thing where you just, like, investigate something that is so ridiculous <laughs> and so for, like, got, 18 episodes. And so I got to thinking, how did The <laughs> <Yeah>. Rock... <laughs> Here's me calling my friend and talking about whether I should do this podcast, yeah. I mean, I, mean, I got... 
to nearly to the end of the Wind of Change podcast, and I'm still like, I still have no idea if this story is true. But are you? Did you listen to the one where like the woman who was like the, the mask the, expert? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> did yeah. you did you listen to the one where Motley Crue were getting hammered on the plane whilst flying over to Moscow to do an anti-drugs show with like you know no. Bon Jovi I'd, and I'd lost interest by then. So wow, are you, you going to tell are... me Bon Jovi was a CIA like just creation? No, I'm not going to tell you because you don't deserve to know. <laughs> frankly, you just you you've not earned any of this information. So it's also... only available to those who liked the podcast <laughs> and who followed my advice. I'm afraid. So also... and you've been ruled. Oh yeah. Ineligible. I'm sorry. Leave Queensland, please. So, so when you told me to listen to that pod, I said, well, I don't think I know the song Wind of Change. But when I heard it, of course, I went, oh, yeah, that song. So when we were backstage... And I said, God, this is such an interesting book about the go-betweens. I said, I don't think I know a single go-between song. And... Yeah, that's said what nobody Crab, ever. Actually, Jeremy, Crab's partner, was the first one. He was sitting in the other room and he came, like, running in. And Steaming went, in. What? <laughs> that's not possible. That's not possible. Anyway, so they said, firstly, they said to me, listen to Cattle and Cane, which I didn't recognise. And then they said, okay, now listen to Streets of Your Town, which, like Wind of Change, I immediately went, oh, this song, yeah, of course, yeah, radio. So I did know it. But then we were you thinking... You can feel that, you know, that warm feeling that you talked about <laughs> earlier. It's ebbing away, man. I can hear it rushing out, you know, just like, wow. But then... So then we were, they were questioning me, interrogating me about how could I possibly not know anything by the go-betweens. And so Jeremy was like, 16 Lovers Lane, it's like such a famous album, how do you not know it? Um, and so we checked what year it was, 1988, and I was thinking, well, why would I not know that album? So then I Googled... Because Rick Astley was in the area, that's why. <laughs> it's true. No, I Googled top 25 albums Australia of 1988. Just have a... I won't read you the whole 25, but I'll just tell you some of the albums that year. It's... An unbelievable year for music. So the number one selling album in Australia that year was Kick by NXS. I mean, tough. Just such a good album. The Dirty Dancing soundtrack. <laughs> Can sing every word of that one too. Freight Train Heart by Jimmy Barnes. Lonesome Jubilee, John Cougar Mellencamp. Man of Colours by Icehouse. Tracy Chapman, Tracy Chapman. Introducing the Hardline according to Terence Trent Darby. Whispering Jack. Faith. Temple of Low Men. Good Morning Vietnam. Kylie, Kylie Minogue's first album. Cloud Nine, George Harrison, Diesel and Dust by Midnight Oil. Like this That was, is a massive year. You've mm. always got the blues, Kate Soprano. Tango in the Night by Fleetwood Mac, Appetite for Destruction, Guns and Roses. It was like just so many incredible albums came out that year. And so that I feel is her excuse, more, Queensland, yeah. so yeah. whatever. I think that's a Look, you've got a excuse. nice face, you can stay. Um, <laughs> well, look... Um, it reminds me, too, that Jeremy, emboldened by this exchange, then um, started putting in a serious bid for you to start watching this show that he's been watching called 1971. Oh, yeah. The year that music changed the world or something like that. Anyway, which is completely, absolutely... That does sound great. And yeah. I am hanging for the Peter Jackson doco and the Beatles, which is coming. I think it's called it's, Get Back. It's about time somebody made a film about those people. <laughs> yeah, I think it's been, a real, it's been a real gap in the old market. <laughs> Um, I would also, because I've now accepted we're never coming back to the bloody go-betweens, um, <laughs> um, there is um, a very funny few passages about how um, the go-betweens and, you know, Nick Cave um, being in London were just got completely pissed off by people coming up to them all the time saying, oh, you're Australian. Wow, Australian bands are amazing. They're doing so well. Because Icehouse was in the, you know, touring all the time. They'd be like... <laughs> so it's just like... A lovely portrait of, you know, independent and, you know, um, 
um, kind of alt. But there were there were the kids at school off. that were listening to the Cure and you know and Violent Femmes. Yep. And you know what I mean? Like there was a different. Then there Not was you the though, kids baby. like me listening to Bros and. <laughs> Do you say Rick bros? Athens. Are you joking? Do you say bros? No, no. Come on. No. <laughs> I always thought it was bros, as in floss. Let's Did I do, get that? Let's check with the audience. Okay. I don't know. Can we have a bit of house lights? If you were called upon to mention that ridiculous pair of blonde if you, if you were If you had to with say, the, here, with, when will I be famous, please welcome bros. Hands up if you say bros. One person. Oh, no, no. Come on, people. What about yeah, okay. bros? And bros. Oh, it's bros. Oh, no. Ooh. It sort of seems even. How much, who doesn't have any idea? Yeah. <laughs> You're the real winners tonight, people. <laughs> can we please have, just for back of house, as our walking off music when we go off, can we please have When Will I Be Famous? See, this is, <laughs> this is what she's like to live with. Just like, somebody make that happen. (laughs) Somebody break into whatever safe bros music is kept in. And uh, The thing that's going to be great is by the time we say goodnight, we're going to have forgotten about that. And then when that music starts, it's going to be so gold. It's going to be great. Yes, low standards for comedy moments. Um, Before we move on from... um, I'm still trying. Go betweens. I'll just say, I'll just say <laughs> that um, no, there was just a good film made a couple of years oh, yeah. ago about the go betweens. Um, it's like a doco. It's like super worth seeing. It's um, directed by Criv Stenders. Um, it's called Right Here, and I mention it only uh, partially by way of. Um, you know, uh, letting you know that I did see Lindy Morrison alive at the premiere of this movie at the Sydney Wright Film Festival a couple of years ago. But it's so freaky because she was in a relationship with Robert Forster, it broke up and the the two boys in the band, the late Grant McLennan and Rob, Robert Forster, decided, by that stage it was a four-person band, Amanda Jones was playing the fiddle and she was in a relationship with McLennan and Lindy Morrison had broken up with Rob Forster and they had continued in the band whilst being post-related. 100%. But then the boys decided, we're just going to go back to being a twosome now, I think. So see you later, girlfriend, in, in the case of Grant McLennan. And so she immediately dumped him very sensibly. Anyway, when the movie premiered, they had all the surviving members of the go-betweens there, but they are so no-speakies, like the two women are very good friends, but the surviving bloke wouldn't wouldn't even be on stage with, like, it's just so super awkward. Mm. This feels like a good moment to tell you about the podcast I've been listening to lately. (laughs) Right, I thought you were going to say, this seems like a good moment to say that I don't want to do this podcast anymore. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't want to be on stage with you ever again. No, it's called Trashy Divorces. It's a podcast? It's really good. Yeah. This, look, I've got to say, it, it has the, the little sniff of something I might be interested in. Yeah, it's, <laughs> look, it's just, it's, you know, it's popcorn-y. And the, the people who host it, they're not sort of, you know, the, the title makes you think like it's going to be snarky, but it's actually sort of not. Okay. Um, Hard so... to see how you could avoid it, like a... <laughs> So, like a whiff of snark, but yeah. well, there's a little bit of snark. The first one I listened to was about Olivia Newton-John, and so it was about 
um, well, just about her life actually in general, but then it delved into the the disappearing husband. Mm. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So there's technically a divorce, though, is it? No. Well, that's mm. what they say, and they pointed out that like she ends with like you know five halos intact because she's not done anything wrong. She's a, she's a complete princess and a sweetheart. Um, and so it sort of goes through the her. Oh, sorry, you being facetious? No. She oh, is. sorry. I thought you were just no, being a bit of a mole. Are there. you joking? <laughs> Are you joking? So, Olivia no, hey, John. She's I'm, an angel. I know, right. That's yeah. why I was just questioning what I assumed was kind of no. like a bit of an arch. No, no. I'll stop. There's you one about um, Sybil Shepherd and, um, <gasps> yeah. yeah. And so it goes through all the moonlighting years and stuff as well. And mm. then there was a good one about Jessica Simpson and Nick Lachey. I just never remember who they are. They, they had a show called Newlyweds and it was one of the first kind oh, yeah. of those reality shows where it was like people allowing a fly-on-the-wall observation of their relationship. Never a good idea. Um, and then there was one about that dude that you like, Ryan Adams, and... Used to like. Used to like, yeah. I used to like um, him until he started being a jerk to women, and then he did bad things to Beth Orton, which is an instant dismissal in my well, book. This one was about him and Mandy Moore. Um, did bad things to her too. And then there was one about... Um, oh, Chris Martin and Gwyneth Paltrow. But again, they end by saying it wasn't a trashy divorce at all, actually. But it's just interesting Any when they... Any man who can now buy on the open market a candle that is scented... <laughs> that I just... Anyway, look... It's got to be complicated, right? <laughs> but it's, it was just interesting because they go through each person's sort of backstory and how they've met and then, you know, how the relationship sort of unfolds. It was just very interesting anyway. It's, it's probably a bit of a misnomer being called trashy divorces. Really, it's, it's about sort of high-profile divorces. divorces and it's I just was, good escapism. I always remember when we lived in London, we lived kind of um, not all that far away from where... Gwynny and Chris Martin live. They live in Islington, I think, some, or somewhere. Anyway, somewhere a bit posher than where we live, but not actually that far as the, you know, crow flies. So we used to sort of see her in a supermarket occasionally. But um, also when they had their baby and called it Apple, it, you know, everyone was like, what? Um, fair enough. But the best thing ever about that event was the Daily Telegraph ran a column and it was... I still remember the front page of the telly and um, the, it was puffed on the front page and it said, why I feel sorry for Apple by Peaches. <laughs> Peaches, Peaches Geldof wrote this column about why she, <laughs> I just thought, oh man, it's a, just a fruit bowl of celebrity horror. <laughs> Oh, that's gold. <laughs> so good. I love how quite obviously the idea for that headline and to have that done would have been done well before anyone approached Peaches Geldof or even knew if she could write. Um. But probably someone else just wrote it and said, could we please put your name on this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, Trashy so, divorces. Um, I've been listening to, um, with my daughter, this great um, radio comedy series, right, um, and you don't really see radio plays that much anymore, but um, when they happen, and I think sometimes there are good podcasts that are sort of drama podcasts that are, you know, written and performed. This one I came to by the most unbelievably circuitous method I could possibly imagine, and it kind of is really a demonstration of why I like writers' festivals so much, because, you know, you go to writers' festival and you get dragged off down some weird alleyway or you meet someone that lights a fire and then you end up reading this stuff. Anyway, I was at the Melbourne Writers' Festival a few years back and I was on a panel with Sisonki Emsmang, who is a South African-born um, woman. She's written a couple of great books, including one that I rushed off and read after meeting her and just falling in love with her. She's incredibly funny, kind of, you know... Um, 
lovely, engaging, smart, smart person. She's written a biography of Winnie Mandela um, and she wrote a book called Always Another Country, which is an account of her moving around as a kid with her activist parents who got booted out of South Africa. So um, she's a fascinating woman, but um, I, at the most recent Sydney Writers' Festival, purely because she was moderating a panel, um, I went along and it was a panel with... um, uh, Virginia Trioli and Laurie Penny, who's who wrote Bitch Doctrine, which sits on my bedside table and my eight-year-old daughter is always like, that's the rude book, because <laughs> it's got a swear in it. Um, anyway, this is all by way of, like, this is the most crab run-up ever to a story, right? And I can see in, like, the tightened muscles of your jaw that you are no, registering. I'm, I'm, I'm glued to yeah. every word. <laughs> anyway... So I started following Laurie Penny on Twitter because she's moved to Australia now. She lives in Melbourne, unbelievably, and very fortunately for for us. And she tweeted a picture of herself with a T-shirt on, and the T-shirt says, MJN Air. And she just says, I am so pleased and proud to have this even though I know this reference will make sense to absolutely nobody. So, of course, I'm like, well, what the hell is that about? So I start Googling MJN Air, and it's the fictional private airline, um, single aircraft airline, on which this radio comedy series called Cabin Pressure is based. And... Look at your face right now. I'm just wondering when we're going to get to the pod, actual podcast. I just think, don't you think it's interesting the way that people find their way to things? No, evidently not. <laughs> wow. I'm really shooting blanks with anyway, the podcast yeah, recommends. So what's it about? What, what's it about? Well, I'm going to tell you now. I don't think. <laughs> no, no, I will. Um, so it's, it's, it's got Benedict Cumberbatch in it, if that's right. of any interest. You're right. Jeez, tough crowd. It is all... It's, so it's about the captain and the steward... And the proprietor of this private jet service, they're going broke, they, you know, fly rich people in and out of um, various countries, and the um, idiot son of the proprietor is also involved. And it basically is just a comedy of the weird things that happen to them when they have nightmare customers and whatever. It's basically a bit like, it's a bit like Faulty Towers. Like, it's just sort of a hilariously inept group of British people trying to be good at something that they're just not... And is it, is it, do you, is you, how long are the episodes? About 20 minutes. And do, do you find your mind wanders off as no. you're listening? You just hold your attention. Okay. <laughs> serious, just because when I've, when I've tried to listen to like a podcast drama, it doesn't hold my, I can't have my interest held. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it is absolutely funny, the right length of time. And even though you can't see anything, their voices are fabulous. You know, the, the, um, the sort of, sort of disillusioned, embittered steward who used to be a pilot and who constantly rips the piss out of the actual pilot is just the the most sort of fruitly compelling and funny character. They're just all evil to each other the whole time. um, Speaking of the great voices and that kind of disillusioned, bitter sort of tone, um, I listened to, you know, Mark Maron, who has, I think his podcast called WTF with Mark Maron. He did an interview with Hugh Grant that goes for about an hour. And what is it with the men in the podcast that just, like, this will be two hours worth of conversation? <laughs> yeah. It's incredible, isn't it? But, I, I mean, it's the first of his I've listened to purely because I do object to the 
sort of length of the conversation, and it's just I only listen to it because I love Hugh Grant so much. It is great because Hugh Grant, I mean, he's had a very long career now and he's worked with a lot of interesting people. And, he and he's, also he's been cheesed off for about 90% of that career, right? Have, absolutely. And I, I sort of like that tone of his, the sort of slightly, um, I don't know, he's self-deprecating and I find him very funny as well. And so he, and it's just interesting, he's interesting. He didn't study to be an actor, he sort of fell into it. He talks about how he's had to try to learn a bit as he's gone. Um, it's, it's worth it. But, you know, before the interview even starts, there was eight and a half minutes minutes of ads. It was <laughs> gobsmacking. Anyway, there you go. I wouldn't get through eight, three, eight minutes of ads, I don't think. I just kept skipping like 30 seconds, 30 seconds, just going, what? We're still in ads. It was quite, quite strange. But anyway, it was, it was worth it because then Hugh was at the end. Did you see Hugh Grant in A Very English Scandal? You know yes, that? Yeah. yeah, loved him. Mm. Did you see him in Paddington 2? <laughs> it's no, so good. Okay, we've had, I mean... I've talked you, about it before. You've barked at me about have seeing you, Paddington 2. Have you seen it still? Clap I've if made... you've seen Paddington 2. Yeah, it's superb. I haven't even seen Paddington 1. I don't think you need to have seen Paddington 1 to okay. appreciate Paddington 2. Does it still 2? have that weird sort of anthropomorphised weird mouth thing? Yeah. I found that a bit scary. I didn't. I, I saw the shorts for it. And I, I couldn't look directly at the screen. I was just a bit like, no. I think no. you'll. I I think you'd really enjoy it. It's no, great. What, save it for like a long haul flight or something like that. And it's just it's easy. It'll wash over you. In the next fun. one of those that I'm going on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> when I'm next flying back and forth to Perth eight times. <laughs> Oh, come on, we're from Sydney. We're never going anywhere again. This is actually our last this hurrah. We'll be dragged off the stage by cops. By the way, it's perfectly... We are fine to be here. We have not been to the eastern suburbs in about 10 years. So, like, <laughs> we're actually fine. <laughs> there, was a, there was, like, a contact, you know, there was a person that had visited a Harris farm in, you know, Leichhardt, and I was like, ooh, she's getting close now, but it's not actually a hot spot, so we're all... Fine. We're all pretty fine. Um, so, by far, the most significant cultural thing I've consumed since I last saw you is a book that I'm 30 years too late to, won the Booker Prize 30 years ago, The Remains of the Day by oh. Kazuo Ishiguro. Oh, my God. It's it, good, is it? <laughs> it? It just rocketed straight to my top five. Like, just wow. straight to the top books of all time. I, I thought it was Unbelievable, absolutely. I mean, you know, like, wow, stop the presses. <laughs> the Remains of the Day is a great book. <laughs> this Ishiguro guy, kid is... Wow, he, he can really, really go places. <laughs> um, I loved it so much. I mean, I feel like I don't even need to say what it's about because everyone knows it, right? And everyone's seen the film. I, as soon as I finished it, I watched the film, which I thought was an incredible... Had you, seen, you hadn't seen the film No, before? I hadn't seen the film either. I thought the film was an incredible adaptation of the book and it was really great to consume them both so close together because I thought the film was a great um, example of adapting material where you stay true to it but you make it so it works for a visual medium um, while sort of retaining the spirit of the actual work. It's such a hard thing though because oh, books so like hard. that where all of the action is cerebral, like it's all, all of the control yeah. and contradiction is happening in the mind of this person. So. And there's a scene at the end of it, um, where, which everyone who's read it or seen the film knows. So should we just do a... Re I mean, it's about a, a, it's butler, about a butler, right? It's about a butler who is going on a five-day road trip and he decides he's going to go and visit... Um, his name's Stevens. He's going to visit a woman called Miss Kenton who worked in this grand house called Darlington Manor, I think, where... 
uh, I think it's about 20 or so years on from when they worked there, and uh, they that was in the sort of late 1930s or early 40s, and then it's all these years later, and he needs an extra person to come and work at the house, and he thinks, well, maybe that Miss Kenton might be persuaded to come back, and so he goes on this road trip. And as he's on the road trip, he's reflecting over things that happened in the sort of um, that you know, pre-World War II era in the house. But it's sort of heavily internal, I guess. It's just, it's first person and it's just the butler's, Stephen's sort of thought process. And then the sort of climax of the book is when he and Miss Kenton do actually have their meeting. Um, and in the book, it's like, it's a very powerful uh moment and I was thinking wow how are they going to actually do this because it, again it's all sort of internal and what he's what's going through his head and uh, Anthony Hopkins and Emma Thompson do it really well although interestingly a, a very key line in the book which is a thought is never um, sort of verbalised in any way, but they he manages to sort of capture it in his face nonetheless, so it was really fantastic. But I loved it so much that it then sent me down, oh, I have to read now everything about this, <laughs> including, which I won't read to you from it, but I just brought it to show you how insane I am. Um, I uh -oh. got... You've got... You've brought... <laughs> I got... Um, to a legal journal, the, the, the William and Mary Law Review, Stevens, Professionalism and Owls by David Lubin. And it was this speech that was delivered at a law conference about law ethics. And it's basically about... <laughs> no, no, I'm loving this because I'm, there's nothing I love more than getting on a good little wormhole and just finding, you know, bits of well, let me give you a gist of I, it. I love it. So he uses the remains of the day to talk to lawyers about their about professionalism in the law. So just this is such an old article; it's in courier font. <laughs> I can see from here. <laughs> so it's like the parallels between lawyers and butlers should be obvious. Both offer service to clients. Both are entrusted with large responsibilities, and both are privy to confidential both information. Are massively sexually repressed around <laughs> Emma Thompson. <laughs> Butlers, like transactional lawyers, do their job most successfully when you scarcely notice that they are doing it at all. And then he talks about lawyers and butlers both having their sense of professional ethics. Blah, blah. Anyways, absolutely One fascinating. One of them is much better at making you exactly the right gin and tonic, I suspect. <laughs> and then I listened to... There's a great podcast called... Well, careful, mate. You're, you're so excited about legal reforms that your glasses just flew off your face. <laughs> then I listened to... Do you know that podcast, How to Fail?, I have heard of it. It's, it's not relevant great. to my life experience, so <laughs> I don't... So she does an interview with Katsuo Ishiguro about sort of his whole career, but he's talking about this. And one of the really interesting things um, that came out of it was... So the scene that I talked about before, which is really pivotal to the book and the film... Um, he talks about how he wrote a draft of that book fairly quickly and the idea for the book came about because his wife and he were at home. He'd written a couple of novels before that and they were at home and a journalist was coming to interview him and she said, wouldn't it be funny if I pretended to be your butler? And it sort of just sparked in his head just thinking about butlers and so then the idea for the book happened and he ended up writing the first draft in, you know, a month, like not very long at all, but he thought, oh, there's something missing from it. And then he was sitting around listening, he's, he's a, a musician and he loves music, he was listening to Tom Waits and it was a Tom Waits song called Ruby's Arms and there's a, he said something in it sort of struck him which was that 
The song is about um, Tom Waits. It's got that really raspy kind of odd sounding voice. And he's a sort of itinerant kind of worker who has uh, is leaving his lover, who's this woman called Ruby, and she's asleep in bed. And the song is basically, you're asleep in bed and I'm leaving you without saying goodbye. And it's breaking my heart. And then as Ishiguro was listening to it, he realised, oh, that's what I'm missing, which is why this song's affecting is because the Tom Waits character, the sound of his voice and the kind of chords he's playing, it's very sort of just, you know, working class dude, but the sentiment is really sort of deep and emotional and so it's the sort of conflict between those two things and it's like the sort of cracking open of the veneer of this tough guy. And so he says, oh, that's what I'm missing in Remains of the Day. It's the cracking of the butler's veneer where you get that just tiny glimpse for a moment into what lies beneath this very still surface. And then that gave him, this is the moment I need. But he talks about how he realised how difficult that was going to be to execute because it has to be, and, and the reason that book you know, for many reasons, it's such a masterpiece, is it's so, so subtle. Like, all of the revelations about the butler's character um, and what his professionalism is costing him are really subtly exposed. Anyway, it was. I just feel like reading it from the start, again, I just could not have loved it anymore. Well, I'm very pleased to hear that you've had that... I mean, there is nothing greater than... I mean, even if you come to it 30 years too late, you know, picking up... A, no, but I mean, like, I, I'm... I can't. I never read a Booker Prize winner at the time when it's all happening. I'm always that idiot that's just like, "Hey, has anyone heard of this book?" <laughs> but you've knocked over Shuggy Bane, which was... I wrote a Shuggy Bane. Was that yeah. that that was last year's the year before last year's? I don't, it was pre-pandemic. I don't know. Okay. Everything is just pre or post. I can't remember which. But um, I can report that it's a very good book. <laughs> but actually, I mean, just it actually was just reminded of Shuggy Bane when I was talking about Rick Morton earlier because. You know, Shuggy Bane is about this, um, the main character is this boy who grows up in just absolutely grinding poverty and just miserable circumstances in Glasgow and his mum is just an intensely beautiful drunk and was this sort of, you know, flower of the town and then had a first marriage that didn't suit her and then she kind of hit the drink and then married this other guy who was like a brute, beat her up all the time and basically Shuggy, who is a gentle, effeminate boy and who is gay, as is evident to, you know, um, everybody around him to his own detriment um, pretty early on. Um, and it's an intense slog because there is just so much hardship in this kid's life but it is kind of an in, it's beautifully written and is i don't know one of those books that finds beauty in filth basically you know um and it, it kind of reminded me of rick's writing because i think that he is very good at that as well anyway turns out it's a terrific book it should have won the book up well done <laughs> is it hard going no, I oh. mean it's not. I mean it's not. You know, um, a little life type. Yeah, that's going. what you just made me think of. Yeah, so. no, 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 no. It's just, it's just. You know, you you get a sense absolutely of this cold, grey, poverty-stricken Glaswegian, and then later in the book, outer, like outer suburban Glasgow kind of um, desperate kind of upbringing that is um, full of violence and disappointment. Um, so it's kind of, it's not cheery in that sense, um, but um, there's, you know, these 
extraordinarily observed characters. You know, it's, it's, it's wonderful to read. Can I just tell you about one more book before we run out of time? Yeah. Um, how are we? Does anyone have to go to the toilet or to dinner or something? <laughs> we are. We, we are. are we've, yeah. we've run twelve minutes over, but we 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 that she would normally be having hives at this point, but because we start started a bit late because of the traffic, we we can get away with it. Yeah. Um, but we're nearly so done. It's all right. I read a book called Night Blue by Angela O'Keefe. This is the book about if anyone's heard of it, it's written from the perspective of Blue Poles, the painting. Like, it's like Blue Poles I'm is immediately jealous that I didn't think about that as a book option. Did I, when I, somebody mentioned it to me, and I swore it was you, but then you said it wasn't you, so it has to be somebody else. So. Just another one of your witty, well-read friends, I suppose. <laughs> so, I must admit, when somebody mentioned, to, mentioned it to me, I thought oh, that seems a bit gimmicky. It feels like it's going to be trying too hard like to tell a story from the perspective of the painting. But it actually works really, really well. So is it kind of, you know, Diary of Adrian Mole type of thing, you know? <laughs> Tuesday got farted on by a, you know, person who stood too close. It starts when Jackson Pollock is still painting it in the oh. barn. Oh, okay, right. And so it's talking about um, just... I guess it's observations of Jackson Pollock and Jackson Pollock's process and stuff and its relationship with Jackson Pollock and... You missed a bit. Yeah. <laughs> Need another dribble over here. Exactly. <laughs> but J Jackson Pollock was a sort of massive pisshead, wasn't he? Or something? Yeah, yeah, so it talks yeah. about so, that. Yeah. It talks about um, his wife, I think her name's Lee Craswell, um, and... Then it then it gets finished and it, it, it talks about the night when he actually does the, you know, big fat blue poles on it. Um, and See, I would have started with the poles if I was painting that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm the next person. <laughs> It's easy for you, Annabelle, when you're not the expert who has to do it. <laughs> did anyone see that interview that... Um, Sales did the other night with the health hazard in South in New South Wales. Brad Hazard, the health minister. Hazard. He uh, hazard. hazard. I mean, bummer of a birthmark, Hal. Honestly, but anyway, he's a good guy. Anyway, but uh, Sales went full sort of just oh, she went full power toad on him because you know, turns out that the guy who's been merrily driving around town infecting people with the Delta virus or whatever is a, you know, an airport driver who's not been vaccinated. So Driving international flight crews. Yeah. Who could have seen that one coming? As, <laughs> as Brad Hazard said, it was an unknown unknown. <laughs> and I was watching at home and I'm like, oh, dude, don't say that. Like, she'll go, <laughs> she'll go, yeah. Sure enough, sales is like... <laughs> you call that a known unknown for a person conveying newly arrived people to quarantine hotels not being vaccinated? Would that be a known unknown? And he's gone, well, Lee, I'm sure it's easy to be an expert when you're just, uh, when you're not actually responsible for doing the job. And whereupon she says, well, it's not rocket science, is it, Minister? <laughs> The thing that has made me laugh is my boss, Justin, um, 
for whatever reason, that particular phrase about it's easy to be an expert when you don't actually have to do the job tickled his fancy. And so literally any time since then that I've gone, Justin, I don't know, I don't know if we should lead with this story. He's like, well, Lee, it's easy to be an expert when you don't have to... <laughs> actually, it reminds me that we did have a couple of questions that people sent in. So we oh, should yes. maybe finish with that because yes. somebody, and I can't remember who, some, you know, clever and incisive chatter, um, wanted to ask you what I thought was a really good question. Yes. Which was, and you might have a record of this chatter's name, um, but the question was, I think, something along the lines of, hey, you know, when you have an awkward interview with some, somebody and it's tense and you've just given them the full nine yards, like, I remember watching you, your last interview with Scott Morrison where um, he hadn't showed up for, like, 15 times and then you empty-chaired him. <gasps> and then um, when he turned up, there was one question that you asked that was, like, um, you were halfway through the run-up and I'm like, oh, this is bold. Because it was sort of like you ran through about four debacles that have happened and, you know, nobody's been held responsible for this. And I'm like, you're really going there, right? Oh, okay. Anyway, um, anyway, the question was, um, when you have this sort of awkward, really confrontational, tense interview, what's it like at the end when, you know, the cameras are off and you're just like... So, anyway, <laughs> up to much with the kids this weekend. It's like, what happens? Well, actually, the Brad Hazard one's a good example of that because that was pre-recorded before the show. But it's, it's a bit different with him because he... When I was in my mid-20s, I was New South Wales state political reporter and he was like a shadow minister for something or other at that point. And he always remembers some press conference that I was at where I was doing that kind of, you know, questioning and he says, oh, I always remember, you know, back, back in the day, you know, 25 years ago, blah, blah, blah. I actually can't remember the, the thing that he's talking about. But so, sorry, that's a way of saying that we've known each other a long time. So he, at the end of that interview, is just perfectly pleasant. I just go, thanks for, you know, so we finish. I go, thank you, Minister. He goes, thank you. And then the camera stops rolling and I go, well, thank you very much, Minister. Thanks for making time. And he'll go, no worries, Lee. And so usually they're Morning, fine. Ralph. Morning, Sam. Most of the time with the politicians, because they know that sometimes you come on and, you know, it goes all right for you and sometimes it doesn't go all right for you. It depends on the story, depends on the day. Um, and so most people, because they're professionals, they're usually completely fine. Every now and again, you get the old walk out cross. But they usually... Politicians, I mean, the nature of the job is you have to have a massively thick hide. Yeah. And so yeah. they tend to be very gracious about it, really. So I've never had anyone, when it's finished sort of say, well, how dare you, blah, blah, you know, it's usually actually, it can be a little bit awkward, but it's not, it's never gets fully unpleasant. Do you ever get put in the bin, like, you know, people refusing to come back for... Yeah, yeah. but they usually get over it. They do, they, they'll be, I'll be in the bin for a while and then right. they sort of get over Who it. Who are the so. binners? <laughs> I'm not going to say that. Oh, so discreet. How, so, long, how long does the binning last? Is it like being put in Belinda person. Meals occasionally freezer? You get, occasionally you get a permanent binner. Um, but, yeah, they tend to come around after a while, especially if there's an election campaign or something like that in the office. Now, the one that I was going to ask you uh, yes. was from Emma. Um, it, it is. Do you ever buy random stuff from Facebook-suggested posts? I'm currently torn as I'm getting an ad for a clever toilet brush and it looks great. <laughs> But based on my lack of relevant search history, I suspect the ad is only shown to me because I'm a middle-aged woman with kids, which feels objectionable. <laughs> <laughs> well, as it happens. <laughs> so I don't really spend any time on Facebook except for the chat group because I fear Facebook. It seems like a giant and 
boundless well of need. I can't go there. Like, it's just, I would immediately disappear and never emerge. So I don't really spend a lot of time on Facebook. But I do get Instagram ads, you know, things that, and I got one, um, <laughs> got one, I think it was, it might have been during the lockdown. Hmm. Yes, I think it was, uh, for a stick-on bra, and I bought a stick-on bra. <laughs> <laughs> and did it work? Um, look, uh, I just, so it's this weird, so you're supposed to be able to wear this bra and you can immediately wear a sort of, you know, backless, frontless, sideless, I don't know. Yeah. Why was I even, I don't even know, I don't really even have any dresses like that, like... I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, but they are this. It's a sort of a cup thing, <laughs> and it's kind of got a stand if you feel of, the need. It's sort of got a kind of like a which you whack on over your lady, and then it's got a kind of like thing that's shaped like a cat's paw, like a sort of three, and then you kind of like whoik the whole thing up, and you go and you stick oh. that up here. And the whole thing is supposed to just stay. Does it? Well, I mean, it sort of did. I mean, yes, but then I kind of looked myself in the mirror wearing only these two things. <laughs> and I looked so much like some sort of experiment that I, I have not ever worn it. It strikes me as if it would be like pantyhose where you leave the house and it feels like they're up and then yeah. you start realising oh, they're not up. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, all I could think when I was surveying the situation was like obviously obviously what would happen if I wore this with a sort of a plunging whatever is that I'd be at some dinner or something you know awards night you know <laughs> if you got another award and I had to attend um, and at some point the whole thing would just go fling and yeah. like end up in somebody's soup across the side of the table like yeah, anyway so I yeah so I did buy a thing that was suggested to me and uh, it was amusing I, I can't... It was inexpensive. It's all right. It wasn't a major disaster. I can't recall why I bought it and if it was suggested, but I did buy that ridiculous baking tin during the lockdown last year when the whole nation was locked down, which I did a stupid thing on Facebook about, which was... It was like mini bunts. Mm. And when it arrived... I don't even know why I chose to buy it, but when it arrived... It's like it was, 36 bunt tins. Yeah, it was like something. 36 mini bunts, and they were sort of like this size, right? So absolutely tiny and they were like really super elaborate like little fairy castles literally as soon as I opened it it was the kind of thing that if you had to pick a present for me which would least fit my taste that is what you would buy it was really fussy and detailed and elaborate and we had to have a big talk horrible. about buttering your crevices didn't that's we? right mm. so I had a stab at making uh, some buns in it it didn't work out they looked like the poos of a my little pony that's what they it was Anyway, I've never used it again, and in fact, I got, I just got rid of it. it. I got oh, rid yeah. of it. Yeah, you I, I regifted it. Yeah, so to speak. Candle Melanie <laughs> <laughs> seems an appropriate revenge. <laughs> oh, we, we've got to let you people go to your dinner and to disperse and taking our spores with you <laughs> into the into the Queensland. We're totally clean. We are fine. Absolutely. We are irreproachable. We filled out all the forms. I hardly ever went to Bondi Westfield this week. Hardly at all. <laughs> it's like an airport. You can't make jokes about that. No. It's like saying, oh, like, no, not funny. It's too soon. <laughs> exactly. Anyway, thank you. Thank you. So you. Much. It's been this great to be back in This is our first live show in years. So it's like awesome. <laughs> 
You're beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> oh, we've gone 17 minutes over.